Good morning. It's back to school time. We had a fantastic uh, back to school giveaway yesterday. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I think about 26, if I counted right, from West 7th were able to go and help at two different locations. Uh, we'll share more later, but uh, from what I gathered, uh, $30,000 was donated for this effort, uh, served about 2,000 students. Um, it was fantastic. Um, and so we're grateful that as a church, we were able to partner with that and bless so many in our community. Uh, really, really a, a good thing. Speaking of back to school, it's time, y'all. Uh, some of our students start this week, some start next week. All the adults, the teachers, administrators, they're already uh, back in it. Probably one of the most challenging uh, school year starts in the history of their career. Uh, but we need to be praying for that. Uh, even the college students, a lot of the universities are starting earlier, and so they're leaving. Uh, some are starting this week, uh, kind of earlier in August. So pray about all these things that are going on. A few weeks ago, John Smith was closing our worship time, and he mentioned, if you were here, you remember, he mentioned about the storms out west, the dust storms, and how you'd have to, to lean in. And I was reminded of that because perhaps we've all experienced a strong wind that if you didn't lean into it, it would knock you back and maybe even cause you to lose your footing a bit. Today I want to talk about the, power, the uh, powerful nature of culture and how it's like a wind that if we're not careful and don't lean into that force, it can knock us off of our spiritual footing and maybe even knock us off course. I put this on your outline, just a question. Do you think our current culture is moving closer to God or further away? Don't even have to ask, do we? I mean, it's just, it's just a given. We just see it everywhere. Even those who do not claim to follow Jesus, they know enough about the Bible to know what you and I have been seeing, and we see it all the time. You turn on the TV, you open your social media, you read the news, you watch the news, you just open your eyes, and it is everywhere. I want to say this as we begin. I don't want you, if you're a little bit older, to think about uh, that you've got this down pad and that this is a lesson for the younger generation to be careful about the changing culture. Because I believe this impacts every generation. When our culture is slipping, nobody gets a free pass on this. All of us need to have our eyes open and our ears in tune and our feet grounded in the truth. I read this statistic and I had to look it up because I didn't think it was right. But I want to ask you the question. Uh, what age group would you say has the fastest growing rate of STDs? What age group? Fastest growing rate of STDs, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, let me keep going, 60s, 70s. Well, the author I was reading said 60s, and I said no. So I did a little research. According to U.S. News and World Report, the diagnosis rates in adults over age 60 rose 23%. Between 2014 and 2017, that's compared to an 11% rate increase for the entire population for everyone over 13. I know, kind of a shocker, isn't it? 
So I share that to say, as I was shocked as I read that, when we think about the shifting cultural change, don't think, well, this is a lesson for the teenagers, or this is a lesson for the college students or the young adults, because once we hit 30 or whatever that magic age is, we're not vulnerable anymore. There is no magic age. In fact, sometimes you see wonderful godly men and women who later in life turn away from what's true and right. This affects us all. But that doesn't mean we should lose hope. In fact, instead of losing hope, instead of being swept away by these winds of change, I want us to to be encouraged to stand firm and to to lean in against these, these winds of change, if you will, so that we're not knocked down. We, as followers of Jesus, are supposed to be different. We're called to be salt. We're called to be light. We are the ones to turn the other cheek. We are the ones to go the second mile. We are the ones in that moment of opportunity to show what true forgiveness is. What unconditional love is. So if our culture agrees with us and they're also following God's ways, great. But if they're not, we're not going to be shaken by that. We might be disturbed by that. It bothers us, sure. But we're going to stand firm. Look what Paul said to his protege, Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 1. We've been looking at a couple of verses in this series about how Paul is encouraging Timothy. He says, understand this. In the last days, chapter 3, verse 1, there will come times of difficulty. Understand this. That's the ESV. The New Living Translation says, you should know this. The NIV says, mark this. Basically saying, don't be surprised. This is coming. And that phrase, last days, if you study that, you know, that just means the time between when Jesus was on earth the first time until he comes again. Those are the last days, biblically speaking. That's what we're in now. And so what he's saying here, during these last days, things are going to shift. The culture is going to shift. So understand this. Mark it down. Don't be surprised by this. And then the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, Paul says why we're going to have this shift. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They're not going to put up with with what is true and right anymore. The standard that we hold as truth, where we find how to live, what is the best life, they're not going to accept it. So Paul is telling Timothy, and through inspiration is telling us, don't be surprised. Mark it down. This is going to happen. And I think this message is true for the church in 2020 all the more. See, the question is not, will the culture shift? The question is, when the culture shifts yet again, Are you going to shift with it? When the culture shifts, are you going to shift with it? I put this outline on this question on the outline. How do we stand firm, stand strong in a culture of compromise? That's what I want us to think about for the next couple of moments. And I think maybe the best way to do that is just to open our Bibles and see a good example of someone who did just that. When faced with this amazing wind of change, a culture change just yanked out from under them, how did they stand strong? And the example I want us to consider is Daniel. Daniel and his friends. 
Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. The book of Daniel really just gives us a front row seat to this. So as you're turning your Bibles there, the verses are going to be on the screen as well. I'm going to give you a little bit of background to just remind you of what's going on in Daniel's time. The year is in the early 600s BC, maybe more specifically about 605. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Babylon is the world power. They keep knocking out kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar sets his eyes on Israel, so he goes to their capital city, Jerusalem. The Bible says he besieged the city. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's approach, though, is different than others of his day. You may remember from just world history, from studying Bible, how oftentimes when, when nations would go to war, sometimes the conquering nation would just obliterate the, the, all the other, kill everybody, men, women, children, everybody. Sometimes they might kill those in the army, but then maybe take the others back as, as uh, uh, prisoners. Or maybe kill all the men and take all the women back. But Nebuchadnezzar did something different. He besieged Jerusalem, but instead of killing everybody, he takes back what we might call the best and the brightest, the most promising. Well, why? He had enough wisdom to know. He wasn't interested in mindless slaves. Every culture had their cream of the crop, and he were to take those and take them into his court to benefit his own kingdom. And so he set in motion a process of brainwashing. So he'd take these back and brainwash them so they would be effective to serve him. Now, here we are 2,500 years later. Even the term Babylon, we understand that means evil. That means vile because that's the nature of that kingdom then. And we understand the term in that ways. It was one of the most wicked, evil cultures in history. And Daniel gives us a close-up view of how he and his friends are right there in the middle of this major culture shift. Everything that, that for them, they were surrounded by others who believed like them, who, who lived like them, who had the same morals as them, who worshiped in the same way as them. All of that has changed. And so now, what are they going to do? So let's look at Daniel chapter 1 and learn how we too can stand strong. Chapter 1 opens like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his uh, chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel. Notice the descriptions here. Both of the royal family and of nobility, use without blemish of good appearance. Without blemish and good appearance. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking Barrett Bingham. You're thinking Dion. You're thinking John Law, right? What are you thinking? But these guys were not just good looking. Keep reading. And skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldean. These were the, the Ivy League elite. These were the National Merit Scholars. You know what that means? That means that knocks out Barrett and Dion and John, right? We're talking P3 material, right? Good looking and brilliant. A little more background. Notice what these Babylonians set out to do to these young men. 
See, again, another little bit of history, if you've studied ancient worlds and how they, they viewed themselves, whatever nation uh, conquered another nation, then it was believed that my God is better than your God. My God is more superior than your God. Now, think about that. If that was the standard way that nations believed, that's why, if you remember, when you go back in your, your Old Testament history, that whenever God's people were victorious, then it reflected wonderfully on the true God in the eyes of everybody. Because he was most powerful. He was the almighty God, and his people were victorious. But you also remember the times when God's own people would turn their back on him, and God would allow them to be taken down. And just the opposite was true. The other nations would say, our gods are better than this Jewish God. That's why that was so important. So the Babylonians here set out to do what was very common in the time. They're going to take these Jewish young men and teach them how the Babylonian gods are superior to their Jewish God. Look at verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. Now, it wasn't just any food or drink. This was the best of the best. If it came from the king's table, that means it was the best that would ever be served, that would be consumed in the whole kingdom. It also meant that this was sacrifice to the Babylonian gods. That in and of itself would be an affront to any Jewish believer in the true God but notice the rest of verse 5, because we typically, I do, think of more time spent on well, what about this food, and what about the drink, and what about the diet, and that was important. But I want to call your attention to verse 5. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So again, Nebuchadnezzar was not interested in just having mindless slaves that he could just tell them what to do. The Babylonians had determined if they could get them into this environment with the best food, the best wine, the best teaching, and away from home. They could just get them in that environment three years. They could strip them of their former way of thinking, of all they'd been taught, all they believed. These good-looking, very talented, brilliant young men would be so ingrained in this new culture this Babylonian culture, that finally they would be qualified and truly be an asset to the king. Now, when I read this, just an observation, isn't it interesting? And in our day, again, 2,500 some odd years later, the common practice for us, the expectation really, is for our young people to leave home for about four years of college. And during those years, every belief, teaching, standard, and moral can be tested. For way too many college students, those years are the epitome of shifting standards. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many adults would have to admit that when you were in college, it was a time where things shifted in your priority? It just happens. It is just life. Abandoning God, drinking alcohol, sexual experimentation, drugs, and the list goes on and on. 
but not to mention the relentless brainwashing that goes into about a secular world view. You know, we may be more concerned about drinking and drugs, but the teaching that is not of God, a whole secular worldview. Again, it's not just in the classroom while you're in college. It's the whole age and the whole time frame and, and the social media and, and the movies. It's everywhere. And then we wonder why our young people, after those years, turn away from God. See, the point is not to avoid college or leave home. The point is to be ready to notice what you're dealing with, to realize when those winds are, are shifting, that you can lean into them and not be blown off your foundation. I think it's one of Satan's oldest tricks to use culture to pull us away from God. And that's what I want us to see in this text. Look at the verses that follow. Verse 6. We're introduced to these four men. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, we know these by name, but as the text tells us, there were others also. But we know this story. Verse 7 shares the, the first strategy the Babylonians used to begin the process. See, if a shifting culture is going to try to take you away from God, and it's so sneaky, but culture does that because you don't realize what's happening until it's happened. But notice how they do this. First thing they do is the first thing that happens now. Verse 7, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, we call, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Here's the point. They were all given new names. Granted, it's easy to read through that and think not much of it. They're given new names. Well, they're in a new town. Maybe they wanted something that sounded Babylonian. Sia told me about when she was in school they had a really good friend of Korean background. Her family was Korean, but they were, you know, citizens in the U.S. And, and was a good friend. But her name, her Korean name was Chung Ho. And Sia and all her friends thought, that's just the coolest name ever. Her name was Chung Ho. But Chung Ho wanted an American name. She didn't want her American friends to call her Chung Ho. She wanted them to call her American name. So she asked them to call her Debbie. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Debbie. Very common name at the time. But she was telling me that she and all her friends thought, not Debbie. You know, that's not you. You got the coolest name in the whole school. And it was like she was abandoning her culture. What made her unique? What made her her? And they all called her Debbie. Understand, the first thing culture does to pull you away from God is to rename you. I'm not talking about your first name, necessarily. I'm talking about your identity. Here's why. Spiritually speaking, our identity is defined by God. He's the one who tells us who we are. The Bible, from beginning to end, communicates this message of who God sees us as. I'll put a few that just came to mind very quickly. They're on the screen. A child of God. We are saved. We are a friend of Jesus. We are justified. We are redeemed. We are heirs. We are saints. We are free. We are holy. We can keep going. 
The verse Dion read earlier, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. If you remember last fall, we had a whole series about the mistaken identity from the book of Ephesians of who we are in Christ. This culture is shifting. And think for a moment how many identity issues are at play. Our identity is found in our citizenship. Our identity is found in politics. Identity politics are everywhere. We don't always see it, but it's there. Our identity is found in our marital status. Our identity is found in our, in our job, our career. Our identity is found in our race. Our identity is found in our gender. Our identity is found in our sexuality. Now, all of those may describe part of who we are, but it's not who we are. Think of those last two especially, because the culture is shifting at those as well. Now there's so many more sexual identities that keep, keep adding letters. And the gender is not set, you have the option to change. See, again, the first thing a shifting culture does is it attacks our identity and it gives us a new identity. And that's the goal of brainwashing, that you will identify as something other than how God identifies you. And then choose to live a life that is not the best life that God has for you. Now, you may be thinking, Randy, why are you making such a big deal about this? If Chung Ho wants to be called Debbie, that's her prerogative, right? I mean, what's the big deal about a name? Well, let's take a moment and dig into what these names mean. I put it on your outline if you want to fill in the blank, but you may have noticed this already, maybe even marked it in your Bible, but I encourage you to take note of this. Daniel's name in Hebrew, and you know this about Bible names, they meant something. It wasn't just, oh, I like the sound of that. The name meant something. It was a tribute to their family. It was a tribute to their faith. And so the name meant something. Daniel meant God is my judge. Even the word L in his name, you study the names of God before, you know L is the, the word God in Hebrew. And to have L in your name, that means God is in your name. Daniel, that's what it means. God is my judge. God's where I find truth. God is the standard. He is who I am. And think about it, every time he heard his name, all of his life, that's ingrained into him. God is my judge. But notice what the Babylonians did. No, 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 no. Your name is not Daniel. Your name is Belteshazzar. What does that mean? You might even notice the B-E-L. That was a Babylonian god. Bel protect him, or Bel's prince is how that could be interpreted. So they took God's name out, and they put the Babylonian's name in. Every time they called his name, they're calling on a Babylonian god. Still today... Culture is trying to get us to change our name and our identity to something that God has not given you. Think for a moment about, again, the gender confusion that we're seeing today. Maybe one of the greatest levels of confusion ever in our history. Women thinking they're men, men thinking they're women. Now, that may may not be your struggle, but that's not to say that we've not all experienced some identity markers Related to gender? Maybe you've been told, be a man, or man up, or real men don't cry, or, or you're a tomboy, or you need to act like a lady, or maybe not gender specific, but just maybe more of a character, or you're a lazy bum. You hear that often enough in your formative years, and it becomes 
A self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Or just the opposite. If you hear growing up that you're smart, you've got it, you're going somewhere, God's got plans for you. You tend to want to grow into that as well. So if you're not careful, you begin to believe and take on a name or identity because that's what the culture does. It's trying to force this on us. It's the first thing that happened to Daniel, and it happened to his friends. Look at Hananiah. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. You remember Yahweh, the name of God that he gave, he revealed about himself. The most endearing name of God to all the Jewish people. Hananiah would have grown up believing God is gracious to me. God is good. That's who he is, and he is that for me. So the Babylonians come and says, nope, 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 you're, you're not Hananiah anymore. You're Shadrach now, which means the command of Aku. Again, another one of their gods. No longer is Hananiah to think of himself in terms of God's blessing, loving him. Now he's to live for the Babylonian god. Again, maybe something like that has happened to you. Maybe life hasn't turned out exactly as you thought, as you planned. And maybe because of that, you think, well, is God for me? Because this is not what I thought he would do for me. And that doubt causes you to question some of the principles in God's word. Well, if God's abandoned me and not answering my prayers, then why should I obey him and follow his rules? That's why we need to be grounded enough in the truth to understand every rule, every command, every principle that God gives is for you. It's for your own good. God doesn't tell you no because it gives him a thrill to tell you no. He tells you no because he knows if you do it, it's not best for you. That's why he gives you the command and the rules. God is for you. Remember the verse in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's a truth throughout Scripture. But he's Shadrach now. He's under the command of Aku. Look at Mishael. His name means who is what God is. Or we might say it, who is like God? Nobody is like God. That's what you're saying by asking that question. And you get the confidence. There is nobody like my God. That's who I am. What an amazing name to have. The Babylonians come in and give him the name Meshach, who is what Aku is. Again, Mishael, El, God is in his name. Nope, taken out. And this Babylonian name is added in. Shishak was their goddess of love and myrrh. Look what they did to Azariah. His name means Yahweh has helped. Yahweh has helped. All of his life, it would, he would have believed, doesn't matter what situation I'm in, God's there for me. God's helping me. God's the one who can help me. So the Babylonians name him Abednego, meaning a servant of Nebo. God can't help you now. You've got to turn to a different God. Where is your God now, Azariah? He's left you. He's not here. You wouldn't be here if your God was with you, taking care of you. But Nebo is right here. You should turn to him. Satan does the exact same things today. Think about it. 
When God says no, when we don't get the problem-free life that we prayed for, or maybe when God is silent and we don't get the answer we want, we can so easily turn to other gods. God's not here, so I might as well turn to the God of money or the God of sex or the God of power or the God of pleasure. Do we really think a bigger, better house is going to solve our marriage issues? That more money is going to solve our life problems? Another person is going to give you life, meaning, and purpose? Until you understand that God is where your help comes from, until you understand that your identity is firmly defined by God, you'll turn somewhere else. So instead of being encouraged by their names to turn to the real God, they're all renamed to the four leading gods of Babylon. Now, getting a new name, that was not just for these four. That was common of that day. But these especially, we know exactly what they were named. And they were specifically named after these foreign gods. It's just so sneaky how it happens. And and again, if we're not careful, it can happen to us. Here's the risk. I want to share this. If you take on a name God hasn't given you, you'll begin to live a a life that God doesn't want you to have. And it's not the best life. So what do we do? We do exactly what Daniel did. Look what it says here in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself And again, we can study the whole context of what that means. But I just want to zone in to this first phrase, Daniel resolved. Again, this is the ESV. Another version says determined. He determined. Daniel determined. I think think it's uh, New King James says he purposed in his heart. I looked it up in Hebrew. I've never formally studied Hebrew, but looked it up to know... I think the best translation is the New American Standard when it says Daniel made up his mind. Now, all those translations are accurate. They give the same idea. That's what he's saying there. He made up his mind. What am I going to do in this situation? Had no control over this. Not my fault. But here I am in this whole new place. And all this has been thrust upon me. Daniel resolved. Daniel made up his mind that he could control. Physically, he was a captive. He was a prisoner. They could do with him, to him whatever they wanted. But he can control his mind. Or as purpose in his heart, depending on how you translate that. If you don't know what happened to Daniel for the rest of his life, we we're out of time to go through it now. I encourage you to read or read it again, the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book. It tells an amazing story about these two. But here's the point. Culture is shifting yet again. The winds are blowing yet again. And in the same words from Paul to Timothy, we need to hear, understand, mark it down, don't be surprised. The winds are changing. And then Paul points Timothy back to the word of God. Folks, culture has shifted, but don't give up. Stand firm. And when you feel that wind, you lean against it so it doesn't knock you off your foundation. In fact, 
Paul's the one writing this. I think about what we know about Paul. Paul would look at this kind of situation, I think challenge us to do the same, to look at it, not to be dismayed when we open our screens or we open our eyes and we see it yet again and go, okay, what's new? What's next? Thought I'd seen it all. Instead, to look at it as an opportunity. Yes, the world is dark and people need Jesus. You have Jesus. This is your opportunity to be light, to be salt, to be that good example. So when culture shifts, you make up your mind to be the thermostat, not a thermometer. I know you all heard that little devotional when you were in middle school, but it's still true, isn't it? To be the thermostat, to know what the standard is. So I close with a simple question, but it's a significant question, and really eternity is at stake. Will I change the world, or will the world change me? That's the question. We're going to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Every time as we teach, we gather, we offer the invitation for you to give your life to the one who gave his life for you. If you've not yet confessed your faith in Jesus, if you're ready to have your sins washed away in baptism, we always have the water ready. If we can pray for you in any way in your walk with the Lord. Why don't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?